This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, host of the Transformative Principle podcast and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. And I am Frederick Lane. I am an author and an educational consultant based in New York. I am the author of 10 books, including most recently, uh, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. I'm teaming up here with Jethro to produce the Cybertraps podcast and to give us an opportunity to bring out some exciting and interesting information for teachers and parents from a wide array of fields, including cyber safety, uh, cybersecurity, privacy, parenting, education, technology, etc. Uh, so we're looking forward to having another great conversation today. And if you like what you hear, we'd love for you to subscribe and share this episode with your friends. Um, and you can uh, do that in any of your podcast players and join us as we navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Greetings, Jethro. Well, good morning. I'm excited for our conversation today as usual. Well, we've we've added another terrific guest to this whole program we've put together. Uh, it's my honor to introduce to the program Akuna Uka, who is a fellow Truman Scholar, which we'll get into in a little bit. But more importantly than that, is a middle high middle and high school speech and debate coach and educator at the New New Road School in Santa Monica, California. Uh, the school was founded about 25 years ago as a response to the racial and socioeconomic segregation that was plaguing schools in the Los Angeles area. Uh, she has a master's in education from UCLA, which she uh, managed to knock out while she was teaching full-time, which I think is more than a little impressive. Uh, and she's also a graduate of Swarthmore College, which was one of my favorite college debating sites, uh, where she studied political science and educational studies. And her Truman Scholarship year was 2013 from the state of New York, which puts her a disturbing two decades ahead of my Massachusetts 
<laughs> scholarship. But I will say as a little bit of background before we uh, turn things over to Akuna that um, we got in touch with each other through the scholars listserv and I had an opportunity to talk to some of her uh, debate students back at the beginning. Well, gosh, when was it? I can't even keep track. This year is just a blur. But in any case, Pandemic. we had an absolutely wonderful conversation. And when Jethro and I got this started, I realized that she'd be a terrific guest. So Akuna, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and chat with y'all. Well, that's fantastic. Is there anything biographical that you'd like to add to what I uh, throw out there? No, you did, a, you did a better job than I think I would have. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll only take credit for reading skills at this point. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, one of the things that we're trying to do with our conversation today is to help educators and parents and, and hopefully some students think about some of the uh, technology issues that you've experienced or you've seen in your role as a teacher and as a debate coach. So just as kind of a you know background piece of information, what what are your thoughts or, or, or what would you say about the role of technology as you were going through school? What changes did you see? That's so funny. So I will out myself with my age so that everything is in context. I am 28 years old. And when I was, I know, I know, when I was in school, we were using the computer to type. I remember taking typing classes. And we were starting to research for essays online. I remember that was a really big deal, being able to access information online. And so that was my context as a student. And it's certainly not my context as a teacher just a few years later. And that piece, I think, is what's so fascinating is that your 28, 10 years ago was 2011 and the iPad had just been introduced as a technology milestone, right? And so that has certainly changed how things are done and opened up a whole new world of things only four years after uh, smartphones really became a thing. And so there's, when you think about it that way, um, you know, I was a teacher in, in, no, I was, I was my first year as a principal in 2011. And it was, uh, you know, I was at an elementary school and no kids really, no kids had smartphones and very few kids had phones. And, you know, just a few years later, uh, you know, kids are getting phones at younger and younger ages. And the way that they're using those has completely changed as well. So in your um, 10 years to where now you're teaching, what do you think has, has been the biggest impact of that technology uh, for you as a classroom teacher? A couple of things. The first thing I think about is culture. So when I first started teaching, I felt as though I understood youth culture. I knew their references. I could follow along. I We were watching the same things. We were digesting the same media. Now, just six or seven years later, we don't even speak the same language because I might watch TV or listen to the radio or watch, you know, listen to Spotify, and they're accessing their content on platforms that I'm not even on. So the students will use vocabulary or refer to people who I've never heard of because I'm not on Instagram and I'm not on TikTok. 
And so the gap between our ability to understand our students and the context in which they're growing up as people has widened because that cultural space, we are literally occupying different realities. And so I find that ability to connect with the students is more difficult because now I have to do research to even understand the emojis and understand the phrasing that they're using because it's coming out of Instagram or it's a reference to a tweet and I'm not on Twitter. And so I think the amount of investigation that educators need to do if they're committed to being able to serve students and understand youth and the context in which they're growing up is incredibly hard. And again, I'm 28 years old. I can only imagine what this is feeling like for folks who have been teaching for 20, 30 or more years. Uh, so I would definitely say that the first struggle is that cultural gap. And then I would say that the second struggle in the classroom is misinformation and the pace at which students are able to access information. I remember, I'm, I'm from New York as Frederick, Frederick said, and I remember being in the library at my school during 9-11 and there was a TV and there was information coming in and the teachers were able to control our access to that information as it was happening. And so they were able to digest what was happening, decide as a faculty, I imagine, how to approach it. And then they were contacting our parents and having discussions with us. Fast forward, and I was in the fifth grade then, fast forward now, as things are occurring, the students might actually be getting information before the teachers even are because we're busy teaching and they have their phone and they're looking down and getting the alerts. And so I think that is one of the huge issues that we have that we need to grapple with as a field is given that we don't control information anymore. We are not the chief source of information and we're actually often struggling against misinformation. What do we do with that? Because I think a few years ago, the tactic was to try and limit it. Okay, we're going to have the phones at the front of the classroom. No one has their phones. Well, now we're all teaching from home and learning from home. So I have no clue what is on the student's lap or what tab they're on. And so now that we've gone beyond the control tactic, we have to live with the social media and the technology. And that has been a tremendous challenge and learning curve. It seems to me that what you're talking about, Akuna, raises, well, a host of different issues, to be honest with you. But the two that leap to mind immediately, I mean, and, this, and, and I'll start with a factual question. So given your particular school and its demographics, what percentage would you say of the students are device capable or device enabled? I would say 98.9. And to be clear, my school is a private school, a private independent school. The tuition is about $40,000. So you can imagine the socioeconomic status of our full paying parents. Half of our families are on financial aid. But I would say that even the students who, if they were in public school, would be on free or reduced lunch have 
smartphones and have access to the internet, to inter Instagram, TikTok, and all of those other platforms that I am still not a part of. And so I would, I would say at the middle and high school level, almost everyone, and shockingly enough, I would say a lot of students in our lower school, because we are a K through 12, even have access to devices. And that has been a, a conversation at our school. There are students as young as second or third grade who have their own, I mean, certainly now, right, we're learning from home. So everyone has at least a Chromebook, but there are even a significant number of students in the elementary school who have their own iPhone or smart device. Well, and I, I think that's a good point. I mean, uh, one of the shows that I'm sure that Jethro and I will schedule at some point is um, the, the device distribution within families, right? Because one of the things that I talk about a fair amount when I go out to parent groups is the natural flowing downhill of devices. And one of the things we're seeing is that these devices, particularly in the Android marketplace, are sufficiently inexpensive that if a parent upgrades to the Samsung Galaxy 8 or 9 or whatever, and they've got a Galaxy 6 kicking around, it doesn't have a tremendous resale value or it's only 100 bucks. And the kid says, well, why don't I use that? It's better than my Galaxy 4, you know, which then goes down to the toddler who is playing some kind of game, you know, in the living room. So I think what you're getting at, obviously, is the enormous um, number of devices. I mean, it makes it possible across socioeconomic, you know, demographics for these devices to be in the hands of kids. Related to that, which I think you're alluding to, is both the accessibility and the speed of information, right? So, you know, I remember, and I, I have to apologize, I gave myself credit for being a decade closer to you than I really am, which <laughs> is wishful thinking, um, and also demonstrates I did not go through school for math. But be that as it may, um, here's the thing that, that I'm curious about is when when certainly when I was in school, right, to get access to information, as you pointed out, either it's on a TV or you're buying a newspaper or something like that. So there's a real cost to getting that information or it can be filtered for you through my parents. My, my parents wouldn't let me watch Jaws on TV because they thought it was too salacious. You want to talk about filtering? <laughs> so there's that. Kids are going to get this information. You're absolutely right. I mean, the pings are going to go off. We, we've lost control of the ecosystem, you know, in terms of the hardware and the information. And this, I think, will bring us back to your debate teaching. Is the solution, and if it is, how do we implement it? Is the solution focusing on critical thinking as in terms of giving kids the ability to process the vast amounts of information they're getting. Yes, end of podcast. <laughs> well, that was easy. There Mic we drop, I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that you brought that up because I think it might have been three years ago, the Stanford History Education Group, SHEG, S-H-E-G, produced a study that was scary as all get out. And it detailed K through university level students in the United States distinct inability to tell actual factual information on social media 
from false information, misinformation. And I definitely encourage all of your listeners to refer to Shag and, and look into that study. And it scared me as a speech and debate teacher because our focus really is getting to truth through debate and through speech. And so in that study, they embedded some of the questions that they asked students to come to this conclusion. And so of course I took some of those questions and I presented it to my speech and debate students nine through 12 the very next morning and just saw what they would do with it. And I was pleasantly surprised and relieved that they were able to tell what was an actual factual piece of information versus what was either misinformation or what came from an unreliable source. And that made me feel and it made me certain that speech and debate and the critical thinking that we require of students in order for them to be successful in the activity is something that has to be a requirement across all schools, K through 12, at a developmentally appropriate level, of course, in order for students to be able to grapple with the onslaught of information. And certainly, I would say that part of it was understanding just because you read something or heard something does not make it true because the filtering process no longer exists, right? When you read that newspaper, of course there's bias, there's you know who published it, but there is some sort of filtering mechanism. Same thing with what you hear on the news. There is some filtering mechanism. Of course, everything has bias and it's slant, but there is that process. Now, everyone is an expert. And so the real question is, how do we help the students to understand who they're getting their information from and evaluate to what extent they buy what they are being exposed to? And I'm really glad you're bringing this point up because I and other people um, have proposed that education should change significantly at this day and age because we have so much access to information that there are many things that we needed to memorize and know before where now we can just look it up. And because we have so much information at our fingertips and what you're saying is that we may have that information at our fingertips, but we don't know if that information is true or correct or factual or an opinion. And that's, that's the key piece. And that's where I would absolutely agree with you that this way to critically think about the information we're ingesting needs to, um, be done at a developmentally appropriate age level, but as early as possible. And we need to be talking about it as much as possible because you need to know what is factual and what isn't. And so looking um, on social media about any topic that is even remotely controversial, you get, if, if there's one way to believe and another way to believe, you get both of those people stating those beliefs as facts without any like, there's no other way to believe. So how do you teach that to students in a way that um, that is helpful to them and helps them see it without, without it being an argument, you know, without it being a, uh, a way for the teacher to then put her bias into that conversation as well? Absolutely. And I teach 
students as young as 10 and as old as 18, 19. And so, of course, it depends on who's in front of me at the moment. But I do find that a way to engage the students is to give them and present some of that misinformation or present something that is from a source that you know is not reliable and see what the students do with it. Is there someone in the room who's going to raise their hand and ask a question or give you pushback as the teacher? And if they do, then I think the next step is to applaud that bravery to say you as an educator are an authority figure who I respect, who has a certain background that makes you qualified to be in this space, but I'm hearing something or receiving information that I have to question. And so I think celebrating and encouraging that sort of bravery in the classroom is certainly first and foremost. And then I would also say then the next step is guiding the students to understand, well, what did we all just experience? And to unpack whatever it is that you presented with the students, whether it might be a tweet that is actually from a bot and that person is, well, not a person, right? Uh, That entity or whatever it is, is pretending to be your neighbor in uh, down the street in LA or a piece of information, whereas maybe it seems correct, but it's actually out of context. And that is something that we definitely explore in speech and debate, because I can cite a line that maybe is factually not incorrect, so to speak. But if I ask you for what we call in debate your evidence card, and I read the full paragraph or the full page, okay, it's very clear that you're actually trying to misconstrue what the author's argument was. And that is something that I don't tolerate in my classroom. And and that's something that we can definitely discuss because I think uh, one of the beauties of speech and debate is that the students learn those critical thinking skills, but then we also have to teach them that if you know what some of these tricks are that other people are employing and, you know, in Instagram or Twitter or wherever, you need to make sure that you are not employing those same tricks in the debate round or space in order to win. Because some of the students learn how to manipulate evidence just as well as some of these bots do. And I think we have to teach students that there is an ethical way to use others' research and to use others' words. That's a beautiful lead into the broader concept of cyber ethics, right? And, and it seems to me that that's really what you're driving at, which is to say that there are certain things, you know, yeah. that we can put a pin in and define as a fact, right? The freezing point of water is an undisputable fact. But when we start talking about things that are more humanities or social science oriented, there's a it, it gets more difficult to distinguish between the concept of fact and and opinion and so it seems to me that one of the pedagogical goals that you confront daily is this idea of understanding argument and your own personal agenda that a key piece of cyber ethics is what are you attempting to achieve by putting information out there and more importantly by relaying information? And do you provide context for the information that you're providing? So X person may have said this, but who is that person and what is their agenda? And how does that fit into what you're doing? 
And I'll simply finish because I'd love your thoughts on that. But I will finish by saying that in a way, what we've been circling around today is the need for, <laughs> it sounds so old fogeyish, it really does, but the three R's, right? And I, I obviously, as I demonstrated earlier, I don't believe in arithmetic, but I do believe in <laughs> reading, writing, and rhetoric as being key components of the educational process. So I'd love your thoughts on all of that. Absolutely. And, and it's funny because as you were speaking, I was wondering, what is the freezing point <laughs> for water? I don't know, but I know that I can Google it and get that information. So, you know, this is all a beautiful thing. We just have to figure out how to use these tools appropriately. Uh, but absolutely, one thing that we also discuss is exactly what you said. How can we use this information ethically? And also we have to remember too, we're talking about tools where the misinformation is spreading faster than accurate information. And so it's really an interesting challenge that educators have because it's not only that, you know, it's not your cable news where you hear both sides and there's a, someone who's mediating and you're hearing both sides and you're evaluating the misinformation or the bots are actually spreading faster than the actual information. And so a huge part of our challenge is figuring out knowing that we can't get in front of that because this is the way information spreads, uh, spread, how do we help students to evaluate what they are getting uh, at the speed at which they are? Uh, so that is certainly something that I've been grappling with and, and thinking about, especially as someone who's not actually on a lot of these platforms. <laughs> well, and, I, and, and I'll, I'll toss this off to Jethro in a second because I'd love his thoughts on this, but it seems to me that one of the fundamental debates that the events of this week are going to force us to have is the role of technology companies in helping with this process, that they can no longer simply be a fire hose of misinformation. And you started to see them having some they've made some steps in terms of labeling things and things like that, giving kids a heads up that there might be something that needs to be investigated. As an educator, I mean, and Jethro has been in the K-12 environment, what do you think? I mean, where where do the companies, What what is the role of companies to help out educators like Akuna with this process? For me, this is a, a bigger question of... <sighs> And I don't even I don't even know if we're gonna have time to get into this, but this is this is an area where can we trust those bigger companies, those tech companies, to make those decisions for us? Because they have agendas and they have things that they're trying to do as well. And so for me, that becomes a really big issue: is can I just like we need to question whether or not we can trust um, cable news media, whether we can trust our local newspaper, whether we can trust. Um, the, the technology companies, the media companies, uh, we really have to start understanding like that, that we can't just take trust in them for granted. And this extends to our government as well. Can we trust that our government is really doing what is best for us? And those questions need to be raised in a way that that you can have some discussion around that because there are things that our government has done that we should not trust them 
in in that re, in that regard there are things that are um that these other media companies have done where we really should not trust them and so it becomes a question of how do we know who to trust and how do we how do we assess and manage information in a way that we can then make a decision so i'll i'll direct that question to you akuna <laughs> Jethro, you gave a beautiful response. My answer was going to be no, end podcast, <laughs> simply because <laughs> for me, my students are my students. And my goal is to help them figure out what the world is and what their place in it is going to be. That is my agenda. For these companies, my students are goods that are being sold to other companies. And so there is a distinct tension because these companies are, are profiting off of students being on these devices as much as possible, being on these platforms as much as possible, and going back even to the misinformation or whatever it is, whatever reality you would like to enter, social media feeds it back to you. And so it confirms what it is that you want, which is great for these companies because then you're on that platform longer, you're exposed to more ads, they're collecting more information about these people whom a lot of them are under the age of 18, right? And so it is in their best interest because they are profit-driven entities for your student to be on it as much as possible. And if your student is on it because they're going down a rabbit hole of misinformation or going down a rabbit hole of things that interest them, that's a feedback loop, well, that's in the best interest of the company. And so absolutely not what I say, I would trust the company to go against its own chief agenda, which is profit. And unfortunately, I hate drawing attention to problems when I don't have solutions, but I don't have a solution because then if we look to the government, well, the folks in government are as removed from my students' experience as I think you can get. Someone can Google the average age of a congressperson, and I teach students who are between the ages of 10 and 19. So given their life experience and the rapid pace at which this technology is progressing, how can we even trust the government to regulate this industry? And so no solution from me, but I think that then speaks to putting the onus on parents and on educators where we have to be a team because our agenda is taking care of these children and helping them to become adults. And we can't trust that just because it's popular and everyone else in the class has a smartphone and your child is eight years old, that that is the right thing to do. We, as parents and as educators, we have to be more critical than that too. Well, I think actually, Akuna, for all of your protestations to the contrary, you did come up with a solution. And I think it's actually a critically important one because it's a little bit like the debates and the discussions I have with people about decency and so forth. And, you know, the question is how involved should particularly the government or even network television or whatever you want to say, how, how involved should they be in setting decency standards? And my argument is, this is a family by family decision that the, the parents 
help the children understand the context of what they will see and at age appropriate limits put, you know, or age appropriate ages put limits on what they see. And that's a family by family decision. And I think exactly the same thing is true with respect to information. And I think I, I, I'm, I'm working on this still, but I think that what we need to do in part is help parents understand that their children's ability to critically analyze information is directly relevant to their success in life. That that if you know if you know I I don't want us to dig too I don't want to dig too deeply into some of the stuff I'm still thinking about from this week. But if you're going to be making life choices, it is better to do so on the basis of real facts, as opposed to a a diet of misinformation. And we'll be talking a lot more about this later on. And, and we have you on for much more cheerful purposes. <laughs> but I, I do think that that's something we need to think through. The last question I think I really wanted to throw out to you was, um, you've got these students now who are coming in to do debate. Media companies and, and networks and stuff, they can, they can have a role and the government can have a role. But I think what the issue becomes is access, is that if if every kid has a smartphone and they can download any app they want, then um, then it's not really a family decision at that point. Where companies put in parental controls and opportunities for parents to influence and make those decisions, that's what matters. Now, if it's just over the air TV and, you know, there is indecency on there and there's drug use and swearing and and every vice that we can think of that is, you know, on TV at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, then that's an access issue. And I believe we need to have some uh, support around that for families so that kids aren't exposed to that. You know, um, if, if it is uh, technology devices, um, you know, signing up for an account when you are over the age of 13 is a good step in the right direction, completely unenforceable and impossible to track, but at least you're making an effort. And that's the piece where I just want to inject that real quick, that that's, that's an important thing for us to think about as well, that if it's freely available for everybody, then, then parents don't have a choice. But if there is some restriction, then parents can be involved in that conversation. As you know, I'm a former debater and you know, my, the research I had to do was so antiquated compared to what they're doing. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the actual practical use of technology by your debate students. What are they doing? You know, are they are they using social media for the support of their arguments or as part of your job to help them find other non-social media sources? Yes. So the answer is yes and yes. On one hand, we start by helping the students understand the different categories of information. Is this a scholarly source? Is this person speaking to other academics within their field? Is this a source from someone who has a PhD in the topic and is speaking to what we call in speech and debate a lay audience? So maybe it's Dr. Whomever who was speaking about the pros and cons of universal basic income on a talk show. Is this someone who you have no clue who they are and they are giving their opinion about Andrew Yang's platform on UBI? And you have no clue who that person is or where they are or why they have that opinion. 
Or is it someone who is maybe an investigative journalist and you follow them on Twitter and you are now going down the rabbit hole to get information from them? So certainly we don't shy away from social media because it's such a great tool. That's why it's doing so well. But what we have to do is teach the students, how do you use social media so that it's helping you prepare for the debate and not have the incident, which we experienced in the middle school several years ago, where a student (laughs) brought a, a piece of evidence and cited the onion. And so we have to teach. To, I know it, it was a great learning opportunity. Uh, and that's why I love teaching. <laughs> well, one of the problems, Akuna, of course, is that the onion has almost been as factual. As- <laughs> that's, that's part two, Fred. That's part two for this conversation, certainly. Uh, but that is something that we have to grapple with, uh, finding out how do we go online and explore what's a good source and what's not. And then, of course, in terms of the scholarly work, and this might be part three, but I think we really have to think about, you know, folks who are scholars, what are you doing to make your information that you have spent so many years to understand digestible for everyone else. Because part of the interesting problem is that with social media, I can understand 80 characters. I can understand this photo with a caption, whether or not that photo actually happened during that event that you're alluding to, but I can grasp it. It's easy on the mind. And so I think there needs to be a much more close relationships between scholars and K through 12 educators, because I know, you know, I'll spend a Sunday reading your 200 page thesis, but for a lot of people, they, you know, are trying to walk the dog and and take care of their own kids and make sure their own kids are having their homework done. And they're not going to read your 200 page journal article. And so that being said, how can we partner so that we can take all that you have worked so hard to know and present it and offer it to our own students? How can we compete in that way and be just as appealing uh, as social media and the 80 characters? Well, I got to say, Akuna, ironically enough, you're helping us do exactly that with this podcast, which is (laughs) trying to take the information that Jethro and I have developed over the years and make it more accessible, right? And this is another thing. And well, I don't know how many kind of future shows we're going to invite you back on. I think we're up to five now. But, you know, I think that the question would be, right, so you're talking about the the distillation of information. And obviously this idea of, of, you know, we've been doing this for decades, right, speaking to a lay audience. You know, WebMD is very different than the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, right? So, so there's different ways to get information out there. I would think that one of the things that you must grapple with as a debate coach is the the challenge of the information being too granular that that the that it gets distilled down to such fragments that again it loses its context it loses its meaning. So there has to be a happy medium I would think there. You know and that and that this would be part of the learning process for kids which is you know what's the right level of information for the argument you're trying to make. Exactly. And 
what is it that you're actually trying to prove? Because sometimes there's always that underlying debate underneath the debate. What is it that we actually value? What is it that people are actually afraid of? Or if we're debating a policy, is it that fundamentally we think people don't deserve to receive X? Or is it that we're concerned with the nuts and bolts of how we would distribute that or decide who gets it? And so sometimes part of the debate is figuring out, well, what is actually underneath the hood and what are we really talking about? And I think that's that's a part six through nine about honesty, right? And being honest about what we're actually discussing and debating here. <laughs> well, well, and of course that brings us back to cyber ethics, you know, which is an underlying recurring theme for this podcast, uh, which, you know, certainly Jethro can weigh in on that as well. Why are we making the choices that we're making? Why are we doing the things that we're doing and how are we going to conduct ourselves in, in a place where, where we have, uh, free reign to do just about whatever we want. And so it has to come back to us making our own decisions and deciding what we're going to do. And and this is something that we we have to teach our kids this as parents, and we have to teach our kids this as educators. But even as educators, we may still be overstepping our bounds when it's really a parent responsibility. And so we need to um, support parents in those decisions and in those things that they're teaching their kids as well. And, um, and hope and pray that they're actually going to teach those skills because really whether they teach them directly or not, the kids are still going to learn them by their parents' examples, by what their parents do. And no amount of education in a system is going to overcome that and, and unless we go down a dystopian route and say the state raises all of our kids, which is not a good idea either. So we, we have to trust that humans are going to make a better choice. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts like Akuna Uka, uh, who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. And you can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. And we hope that you will share the show with your friends and colleagues. Reach out to us if you have topic suggestions or questions, and we'd love to chat with you about that. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. Uh, Akuna is not on social media, so you won't be able to follow her, but you are fortunate that we got to have this conversation with her. Um, if you're still listening to this, you must have enjoyed what we talked about today. So please give us a five-star rating and give us a review and share it with those that you know. We appreciate having you listen to the podcast and look forward to having you join us on future episodes. Akuna, thank you again for coming. This was a terrific conversation. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was awesome. Thank you. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master's schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. 
Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.